you. Talk to you after the meeting. All right. Good evening. My name is Don. I'm an alcoholic. Who's grateful to be alive, sober, and free on a Thursday night? Come on. I'm Western Life. I want to thank Angie for um, uh, asking me to come out and speak uh, tonight at your meeting. It's always an honor and a privilege to speak for uh, uh, as a representative and member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's always an honor and a privilege. Um, I want to congratulate the chip takers. Um, it is a big deal to get a chip. Um, I know that my first 30 days, it, I wondered how I got it. It was, it, you know, two weeks and we have helped, but, um, you know, nonetheless, um, my first year of recovery uh, was not stellar that by any means and I will uh, will get there. Um, uh, my sobriety date is April 16th, 1994. Hang on. <laughs> Which was Monday. And as of Monday, my sponsor passed on Monday. And it was... Uh, very, it's an emotional time. I've been with her for many, many years. And um, I was sitting with her a week ago tonight. Because every Thursday, you would find me at her table. Every Thursday. If I was not traveling or in an AA event with her permission, I was at her table every Thursday night after my home group. So rest in peace, Betty. And... Um, My home group is the Thursday night uh, Women's Canyon Club meeting, uh, 6 p.m. Thursday nights. And so I would go to my home group, and, we, and then I would go to my sponsors. My home group doesn't uh, have a meeting name. Most, you know, most meetings have a name, like Resentments at a Coffee Pot or Old Town Speaker or Paramount, you know, um, uh, Snake Pit, um, things of that nature. We voted on a name. And we decided that uh, we, we loved our name, and we just realized that the central office probably wouldn't print it um, because it was called the sluts. <laughs> but it was sober ladies using the stats. So let's get that straight. <laughs> um, with those three, those three things in mind, my sobriety date, my home group, and a sponsor, Betty, um, I don't know which one of those things, those three things, keeps me sober, but uh, I know. It, but it keeps me in a member of good, in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I want to, um, I want to tell you um, that I truly believe that every sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a demonstration of God's power to change a human being. But how do we change? It talks about the essentials of recovery and the spiritual experience of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. How? H O W. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. But I believe that willingness is the key, just like it talks about in the third step of the 12 and 12. I believe that willingness is the key because if I'm not willing to be honest, I'm not going to be honest. And if I'm not willing to be open-minded, I'm not going to be open-minded. And if I'm not willing to be willing, nothing is going to change for me. And I wasn't willing in my first year of recovery. And, you'll, and we'll get there and you'll, you'll understand why and what happened. Nothing, really. Um, I, uh, I want to... Um, when I was 12 years old, I had an epiphany on my, parents front, on my parents' front porch. I knew three things. Deep down, I knew, I knew in, the, in the very pit of my gut, I knew three things. What I knew was I was never going to have any kids. My 30s were going to be great. 
and I was going to uh, travel the world in a business suit. It was going to be kind of like Bill's story. I was going to I was going to uh, be the head of a vast empire and manage with the utmost assurance and prove to the world I was important. Those are the three things that I knew deep down within. And as I have recovered and, and developed a relationship with my higher power, I realize that um, that that God is usually God. You see, I believe that we're all born with a, the divine spark within us, that we are born, born with the light. And either we're going to fuel that light or we're going to extinguish it. And it's those, those choices of self-will. And what I did is I chose to drink. And every time I drank, I dimmed the light of the spirit within and so that was what I was, uh, that's what I knew at 12. And in the big book it talks about, it says, uh, it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind, not in his body. So let me tell you what I was thinking about long before I ever took the first drink. When I was in high school, I, I, was, I was a Whittier girl, and I went to Pioneer High School, and I came up with the uh, Socias, the Stoners, the, uh, the Rob Rock Girls, the band, um, and... I didn't feel like I fit in. I was an equestrian. I rode and showed horses. I won national titles. But there isn't a social group on campus that will that will that you can click with. You know, I just I was felt like I never felt a part of. I felt I felt apart from, and I. Um, I didn't feel like I was pretty enough to be in your social group. I wasn't uh, talented enough to be in the the drill team. I wasn't musically inclined to be in the band. I just wasn't enough, and I have no idea where that measuring stick came from. But I knew I wasn't enough. And on, I could tell you where I, on my first drink, I could tell you where I was, what I drank, and who I was with. I was at the El Monte auction. I was with a group of older friends. And my very first drink was Southern Comfort right out of a bag. And I could tell you exactly what Southern Comfort did. It burned the back of my throat, hit the pit of my stomach, and I, boom, I bloomed. And I will tell you that Southern Comfort comforted that measuring stick went away. I became life of the party. I was fun. I was, uh, I was, I was jovial and I was flirtatious. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. And in the doctor's opinion, it says, um, you know, we, you know, uh, we're talking about the sense uh, seeking um, a relief, and that's what it did for me. That's what it did for me that very first time. And I knew I needed to do this again immediately. Because I need to seek that sense of ease and comfort that that alcohol provided. Now, later on, alcohol doesn't do anything to you unless it does something for you. And I'm always seeking that, that, that sense of relief that, that I'm, I'm getting. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to kid you. I mean, I had a lot of fun for a really long time. And then it became a habit. And then I needed alcohol to survive. And then eventually, alcohol became my poison. Um, I can tell you that uh, because I needed alcohol um, and I wanted to feel that effect... That it, that it produced that day. That at 16 years old, I told my very first grand lie, and that was I went to the California DMV, I'd take my girlfriend's um, baptism certificate, took it up right up to the counter, told them I was new to town, and could I get an ID to cast checks. So every time I'm lying to my, you know, so I'm lying to the DMV, uh, I tell my parents I'm going to the high school dance, the football games, um, anything to do with school activities, you know, I'm telling them I'm going to this, these events. Well, you would find me at the Mississippi Moonshine Club in Downey at 16 years old. I am not there to pick up. I'm not there to have fun. I am seeking the relief that alcohol provided because I love what alcohol does. And I, um, I continue to seek this. You know, I, um, I do a lot of things. You know, I get a, you know I'm, I'm having a little bit of consequences. I'm blacking out. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm um, 
I get caught going in the window, you know, one foot in the window and one foot out the window. And at 3 a.m., Dad says, are you coming or going? And at 16, there's really no right answer. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting all of these, uh, I'm getting all of these, uh, you know, these consequences. Just little minor ones, but, you know, any consequence that I endured, it was an acceptable consequence, you know, for the solution that alcohol provided. It was, it was, it was acceptable. Um, I went to, uh, I went. I was in high school. I never had a date. I never had. I never went to the prom. I never had a boyfriend um, because I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't enough. I just didn't have any of those those experiences. So at uh, at 20 years old, I married this man, or I, I met him in uh, January. Married him in August. And if you're thinking about doing something like that, call your sponsor. Uh, <laughs> not a good idea. Uh, one of the discussions we should have had was I didn't want any kids. But um, anyway, uh, you know, by the time I'm 20 years old, I had burned out, you know, going to the bars and stuff, and I'm drinking at home, and, and we were doing our thing, and, uh, and you know, I'm trying to be this doting housewife. I got my first career job, and I'm trying to be this doting housewife and this, and this career woman, and I don't know how to do it. You know, I've got great examples. My parents are married, um, or still married to this day, but I don't know how to do this thing called a marriage. Um, nevertheless, a relationship with another human being um, because I like to drink and he likes to do other things and and we just kind of came together you know we lived in this house and we were married um, uh, and about five months into the marriage he cheated on me he came home with hickeys on his neck and chest and told me they were bruises from work and out popped that measuring stick again and I am not enough I am not enough to keep a man at home I am not pretty enough to, uh, to be a be called a, a beautiful wife uh, I'm not talented enough you know what I mean um, <laughs> I'm just I'm not enough he's gone outside the marriage you know and, and I feel I feel shame and I don't want to be divorced so I stick with that marriage and on our first year anniversary I, um, I filed for divorce and moved in with my, fam- my, my parents again so at 21 years old, I'm, I'm living with my parents' house, I'm divorced, and poor, poor, poor me. And I'm crying every night, and poor, poor, pitiful me. And at six months, I said, poor, poor, pour me a drink. And I got up in the morning one morning, and I am this big, teary-eyed, bloated mess, and I'm not even drinking yet, because I had petered off just for a little bit, um, because I was controlling and enjoying my drinking, or so I thought, but uh, I'm not real happy. And um, I... Uh, so I wake up and I look in the mirror and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to kick ass all over this town. And that's exactly what I proceeded to do. And I left uh, my parents' house and I moved into a roommate situation, game on. And now I'm starting to drink uh, on a more regular basis, like starting on Wednesday to prepare for a happy, or Friday's happy hour. Uh, I am oblivion on Saturday, trying to taper off by Sunday. You know how it talks in the big book, it says uh, he showed up on Tuesday. You know, where was he? Monday, that's me. Um, where was I? Monday. Um, you know, and I'm doing things, in a, you know, I'm standing at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous in, in an open uh, open meeting with men, you know, men in attendance. So I will tell you that uh, uh, I'm a female alcoholic and I will do anything I need to get what I want. And uh, I will use you and I will take what I need um, and I will get what I want. And uh, we can just say that my life became very colorful. I, um, I did things that are unbecoming to a woman and to a lady. Uh, and I was uh, practicing and doing demoralizing things uh, to my spirit. I... Um, I can tell you that I was knocking on hotel room doors in Pomona. I was waking up with blackouts in the middle of at the top of Mount Baldy. Um, I uh, I start uh, dating the owners and, uh, of companies 
or presidents and vice presidents of companies I'm working for. And I am uh, using, uh, when I do the inventory work, I realize that I have used them, used their money, and I have robbed them. You see, I'm their mistress. I had robbed them of their, the, the, the wife of her husband. I have robbed the kids of the time with their dad. I have robbed them of the wallet because he's dripping me with bling and taking me on trips. Um, and really, all I wanted to do was ensure my drinking. I needed a job. And I really thought I loved them. I really thought I, you know, I had something in common. Really what I wanted to do was ensure my drinking, ensure a paycheck. And, uh, when I would call in sick, I got flowers, how you doing? Uh, and I am, and I am using and abusing people. And I am hurting and harming people along the way. And I am doing some really, um, again, some demoralizing things. Uh, I am not proud of that. It didn't happen just once. It happened several times. And uh, it's something I'm not real proud of, but I think it's important to talk about the damage that we cause to others because a lot of times when we work the steps, we forget about the hurt and the harming, the harming we cause others. And we have resentments, fear, and sex, but it does talk about harms done others. Um, and those are the things that I'm doing. Um, I've got a 502. Well, you guys know it as a DUI. Most people don't reflect uh, as a 502, but uh, uh, DUI. Um, let's talk about that. Has anybody ever woken up or come to in the middle of a field sobriety in the field, middle of a field sobriety test? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was. I came to telling the police officer I could not perform this function because my equilibrium was off due to an inner ear infection, and he absolutely. Put the, put the handcuffs off on and I went to jail. Um, and then I have to, have you ever come to in a city you didn't know existed? <laughs> that happened, uh, the night I was arrested. I was, anybody know where La Palma is? <laughs> my point. My point exactly. It's an eight square mile city. It's like, oh my God, how did I get here? Um, when I pulled the police report, um, I was an obstruction of traffic. I was going eight miles an hour because, you know, I, I was blacked out. Um, I had taken another hostage, a boyfriend, and uh, we had lived in Huntington Harbor. And, you know, my drinking, I'm living a life of delusion now. You see, my drinking has increased uh, tenfold, and I am, drink, I am drinking... Um, about every day. And I know that you don't have to drink every day to be alcoholic. Because it says, you know, it, it talks about, um, you know, we, we, we talk about when I'm, when I'm controlling and enjoying my drinking, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, when I'm, when I'm trying to control my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. When I'm enjoying my drinking, I'm out of control. That was me. I was, a, by the end, I was a crapshoot. Man, you'd add alcohol. I didn't know what the hell was happening. I didn't know if I was going to be the happy drunk, the sad drunk, the violent drunk, uh, the clumsy drunk. I, I, I didn't know I was a crapshoot because, you know, alcohol had become my master. I had built my days and nights around alcohol. And I, and I was not going anywhere without alcohol. And if I couldn't plan it accordingly and know where the liquor stores were or where I was going to get my next drink, we were just talking about this the other day, this woman would like try and disguise her purchases every morning at the same Albertsons. I said, why did you just change liquor stores? <laughs> um, but that's because that's what I did, you know. Um, at the end, I was living in Huntington Harbor and, and they, I worked in Santa Ana and I drove down Warner. And at that time, they, you know, they still had tabs. And I had tabs at, you know, liquor stores, bars, and restaurants all the way down uh, Warner. Um, I'm living a life of delusion that this alcohol is still working, but I needed alcohol to survive. And I am driving down the road, and, um, and I'm driving, and I'm, I'm drinking peppermint schnapps on the way to work because I know it smells like toothpaste. 
I've got alcohol underneath the seat of my car. I've got alcohol in my right-hand drawer of my desk. I've got alcohol hidden about my house. It is underneath the sink behind the poison. It is in shoe boxes. It is in suit, po- uh, uh, suit jacket pockets. And I have it hidden in my toilet tank because I am trying to deceive myself that I don't have a problem. Um, the uh, the gentleman that I took hostage, he called me up one day and he says, I'm, are you, are you, I'm, I'm leaving because I'm not going to watch you kill yourself or anybody else. And he walked out. Um, I couldn't imagine. You know, I was now a, another victim again. You know, and I'm using this for more continue, you know, for more reasons to drink. But I don't know I'm alcoholic, and I don't think I have a problem. Um, and I move out, and I move into Seal Beach. I get another job and whatnot. And so I'm just going to take it April 15, 1994. Um, I had drank uh, that night, and I was in a blackout. And my girlfriend put me to bed. And I got up, and I, or the next morning, I had to get up and go to work. Now I'm an overachiever. And I'm going to get to work on time, but I will be drunk. But I'm going to be—I'm going to get there on time. So I get up in the morning and I am shaken. And I had never—I had had the DTs before. I had never had them this bad. And I had the shakes and I couldn't stop. And it was one of those kind of—one of those those mornings that you wake up and you can't stand fully erect, and you've got to kind of feel yourself. We feel your way to the bathroom. Um, I got into the shower and when I started to wash my body, my body hurt. It felt like it had been hit by a Mack truck. And when I got to wash my hair, my hair hurt. And I knew I was in trouble. And I knew what would fix it would be another drink. So I went down, I got another bottle, and I came back. And uh, I know I got this 502 on my back. And so I called my girlfriend and I said, can you take me down to work? And she said, she said, yeah, I'll be right there. Well, according to my standards, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't quick enough. And she says, uh, she, uh, she said she watched me pull off and followed me all the way to work. Uh, and I got to work. I climbed the stairs. I don't remember any of this. It's fed back to me. I get up the stairs, and I proceed to answer the phones in a blackout. And apparently the owners of the company were in town that day, and they took me back home. Now, this is what I call, they called it intervention. I called it a kidnapping because... What happened was when they dropped me off, they forgot to take the keys. When they came back to, when they were going to figure out what they were going to do with me, they broke into my house to come get me. And my family had moved out of town uh, 20, about 20 years ago, and they'd not seen this demise. They'd call me up and they'd say, "Don, have you been drinking?" No, click. And uh, um, they didn't see this demise. And so they they break into the house, and my roommates going, "Oh my God, you know who are these people?" Da da da. And these are my employers. And I remember that uh, when I was laying face down on the bed, they tapped my shoulder. And I truly believe that was a moment of God's grace. Because I believe that God used, used, his, you know, used my employers as a channel to get to me. See, God will do anything to get your attention. And what, he did, what, he did, what it did was I was instantly sober just for a moment. And I had that moment of clarity where it said, somebody knows how bad it is. And I wasn't scared, but I asked no questions. They said, pack a bag, you're going somewhere. So I packed a bag, duffel bag, bottled Bacardi, and on my way. And they took me to a detox. And right as, I, as we approached the detox, I've got one, arm, one, one employer on one arm and one employer on the other. And I got to the door of the detox, and I, I just stood there. And it was as if... All of that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization kept flooding, came flooding forward. You see, I didn't know what was happening. 
But I know that if I can, you know, on page 24 it says, it says um, in the italics, the important part, it says, we are without sufficient force to bring into the consciousness the, the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. And I had, you know, I didn't, I never recalled anything that was going on, all the damage I'm causing, you know, the physical, the physical ailments I'm causing my body, the hurt I'm har- harming others. None, none of that's, you know, coming into, into my consciousness every time I drink. I just know it's going to be different this time. I'm going to seek that relief. You see, I will risk my life in the search of relief and in the need of relief. I will risk my life. And I am now being escorted to a detox. And they, um, and I, and that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization was so powerful. And it was the employers that brought me to this detox. I get into the detox. I get to the, the facilitator. Uh, they said, Donna, you, um, you, do you need to make a call? And I said, no, no, no. You see, I'm still trying to manage the show, still trying to direct everybody. And, you know, I got this handled. And they said, do you have any parents? And I said, yeah. And they said, I live, they, they live out of state. And I'm really sure you can't make a, uh, a long-distance call. And I said, and they said, well, yes, you can. Go ahead. So I pick up the phone. I call my parents. I said, Mom, Dad, are you, uh, are you uh, sitting down? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to detox for alcohol. Oh, my God, Don, where are you? And I said, I, I don't know. And they said, well, ask somebody. So I said, well, where am I? And they said, you're at New Beginnings. And I said, Mom, Dad, I'm at New Beginnings. They said, well, where are you physically? We're going to fly down. We're going to assess the situation, see what we can do to help, and da-da-da. And I said, well, you just stay where you are. I got this handled. And they said, by God, Don, you're our daughter. Where are you physically? So I asked the facilitator, I said, where am I? And they said, well, you're at Clark and Candlewood in Lakewood, called New Beginnings. And there was a pause on the phone, just like that. And my mom said, Don, Clark and Candlewood in Lakewood? I said, yeah. She goes, in 1964, you were born there. It's called Lakewood General Hospital. And for me, that is another one of those God moments. It's one of those, those ironies of my story that was like, I was, I was born there in 1964, and now I had this new beginning. I had this new lease on life. If, if, you know, if I just, if I just do something different, like not drink, uh, and I could be afforded this opportunity at a new life. Well, I wasn't, insurance only paid two year, two months, and, uh, and yet, um, I will always be forever indebted or grateful that Bill and Bob really encouraged that we were an attraction and not a promotion, that our group or, you know, our fellowship was an attraction, not a promotion. Because the facilitator of the aftercare group that I was not required to attend was my attraction. And her name was Eileen. And Eileen sat week after week facilitating this aftercare group, and she had an inner peace that radiated out. And she had that glow about her, and she had a genuine, authentic smile. And she was calm and she was peaceful. And she, you know, she, she radiated. And I knew that's what I wanted. I wanted what she had. And I knew that if I sat next to her week after week after week after week, um, I would get it by transference. I did not know there was any work involved. None. <laughs> and uh, in my first year of uh, physical sobriety, nothing changed. You see... I really believe what Bill and Bob, you know, um, you know, that Joe and Charlie talk about is the fellowship. You know, the fellowship will support us, but the steps change us. I am promised an entire psychic change, but I have to do some work. And I did nothing, but I sat there week after week. 
and nothing was changing. And on my first year sober anniversary, I didn't know that there were cakes and chips and cards and things like that because I went to one meeting a week. It was that aftercare program, and then they had an H&I panel. Um, and, uh, and I was a miserable bitch. And I am on the phone on my first year anniversary, and I'm talking to another alcoholic on the phone. And I said, uh, I said, if this is what sobriety is all about, I don't even want a part of it. I am miserable. And on that day, on that night, on that phone, is when I surrendered to the program as afforded in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When that person suggested, why don't you get a sponsor? Why don't you work the steps? Why don't you go to women's meetings? And why don't you get involved in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous? And your life will change. And so I have, you know, it is, for me, because it's been my experience, I, I would, I, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to take you through the steps of the way it happened for me. Because that is so important to me. Um, I, uh, you know, I was told that uh, I had two alternatives, and it talks about two alternatives in the big book. It says we can, you know, blot out the consciousness of our, of our intolerable situation the best we can to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation the best we can, or accept spiritual help. Or, you know, it says we doomed an alcoholic death or live life on a spiritual basis. Not two easy alternatives to face. And I had to, I had to face that fact. I was miserable. And nothing was changing. And so I had to fully concede to my innermost self. It says on page 44, I only have to answer two questions. It says, if when you want to quit entirely and find you cannot, or when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. If this be, this, if this be the case, you may be suffering from, a, from, a, from an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer. Lack of power is my dilemma. I didn't know I was powerless. But I, I start to go to this step, right, um, that I am powerless and my life is unmanageable. And if I haven't seen that, and I'm starting to, you know, look at look at my past, you know, and I got to draw this conclusion based on my past that that uh, you know I'm alcoholic, and nothing's getting any better. Um, I uh, the steps were broken down to me in the manner in which I heard, and there was two ways, and it was one. I am the problem. Two is uh, come to believe that there is a solution. Three, that uh, I'm going to make a decision to seek the solution. Four through nine, take care of the past. Ten takes care of my daily life. Eleven takes care of my spiritual life. And twelve takes care of my AA way of life. Or as Earl Hightower talks about it, he says he says one is one is me. Two is God. Three is me and God. Four and five is me. Six and seven is God. Eight and nine is you. Ten me. Eleven God. Twelve you. There's no one else to play with. <laughs> So I really heard those, and they resonated within me, and I wanted to get into action. Um, I, uh, I can talk all night about step two, and I love step two. Because it's so, it, it, was, it was a pivotal moment. You see, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous um, in a religion, or uh, when I, you know, I was a kid, and we, I came, in, uh, came up in a religion that I did not understand, nor did I believe in. But I knew and I believed in a power greater than myself, a God that was bigger than me. But I didn't think he cared about little old me. I was this little grain in the sand on the, on the planet, and he didn't care about little old me. It talks about in the big book worldly clamors and, and plagues and sick children, and, and he didn't care about me. And besides, I wasn't worthy of his love. I had done some really shameful things that uh, are very unbecoming, and, uh, you know, and, and, he was, and I was ashamed of that. I was ashamed of the things that I had done. Um, 
And so when they talked about step two, you know, come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore to sanity, I'm like, well, I'm not crazy, man. I can hold a job. I'm not lunatic. You know, I'm not a, a nut. And they said, you are insane with respect to alcohol. And I said, well, what does that mean? And, and then they talk, started talking about that flaw, the emotional appeal. I'm like, what does that mean? And they had to explain it to me. And they said, and, and they said um, that, uh, you know, and I've had these experiences. It says, you know, if your spouse comes, you know, if your, your spouse says, if you come home drunk one more time, I'm leaving. Your boss says, you call in sick one more time or you, or, or you come in drunk one more, late one more time, you're fired. Or the judge says, you show up at my courtroom one more time, you're going to jail. And if the doctor says, you know, if you drink like this for six more months, you're going to die. And even though I know all those consequences, I drink anyway. And I need it. That's my insanity. And, uh, and i got to come to believe about this higher power and this, and this power greater than me. And all they're really doing is asking me to cast aside an old idea, that old idea of a God I, I grew up with and a religion I grew up with, to welcome in something new. It talks about, uh, in the big book on page 50, 55, uh, I'm sorry, 52. I'll get to 55 in a minute. And I can't quote it, so I'm going to read it because it's so powerful for me. It says, um, is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new, but the complete readiness with which we throw away the theory or gadget, which does not work for something new, it does. And I was able to use that and utilize it. And then some of the women that I sponsor and in the past and currently have had that problem with the God idea. I said, all right, let's make a, you know, reference. Just work, you know, just work with me here. I go, let's talk about your cell phone. Okay? Your cell phone. You had an old LG. You got a Blackberry. You upgraded to the iPhone. Now we're at iPhone S and you got iPod 1, 2, or iPad 1, 2, 3, 800, whatever it is now. I said, why do you think that is? I said, and what did you do with your old cell phone? You discarded the old one for a brand new one that works even better. And you welcomed in that idea. I said, you know, you know, it talks about in the in, in the we agnostics and it talks about step two. I get two chances at the second step. It says, it, it says, are you willing to believe or, or you know do you now believe? And later on it says, God either is or he isn't. What is your choice to be? And I and I had to look at uh, my idea of a God, and I used the wind for a really long time because I could use the God of nature, because I could not ever understand why I can go to a Home Depot, buy a bulb, put it in the ground, put some dirt on it, put some water on it, you know, and the air and the in the sunlight, and that dang thing knows to bloom once a year. How is that possible? I can't explain it. I know it's bigger, and you know, and I look at this vast universe, and I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. I use the wind because I can't touch it. It's intangible. But I can, you know, I can see the effects of the wind rippling through the leaves of a tree. And I use the wind for a long time as my relationship with God. Because I could watch your God working in you and I couldn't touch your God. And I could see the effects of your God changing you and the light goes on and your spirit lifts, your skin glows. I'm watching the effects of your God ripple through you. So I used the, the wind for a really long time. I am, um, on step three, the paragraph that changed my life in Alcoholics Anonymous was on page 55. It says, deep down in every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. It is there that he may be found. It's part of our makeup. And I knew. Because... 
I had had that experience of deep down within when I was 12 years old. That epiphany on my parents' front porch, I knew it was God. And I knew that deep down within, it was part of my makeup because I had felt it once before. And, and it says, in the last analysis, it is there that he may be found. And I had expected alcohol, men, money, jobs, relationships, uh, property, any, all that outside stuff to fill a God-sized hole. And I am vacant. And I kept trying to put everything, you know, to, to have all that external forces fill me up. In, in the third step, it says we make a decision. And all it really is is a formal term of surrender. And we are given this prayer in the big book. You know, they give it to us. We're like, here, use ours, you know. And it says you can go off and go on to other things. Um, I'm going to tell you about, you know, the la- two years ago when I was 16 years sober, I allowed um, people to control and dominate my thinking. And I allowed fear to permeate, you know, the fabric that was shot through with it. At 16 years sober, I was terminated in sobriety. That is not an easy pill to swallow. I used to cry when I said it. <laughs> but I've been able to uh, do some work on that. But when I was doing some step work uh, with another individual um, with permission from my sponsor, um, they pointed out this sentence, and I had no idea that it was there. And the sentence was, the wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea of voicing it without reservation. And I was challenged to write my own third step prayer. And it was the most amazing, powerful experience. And I encourage you, if you, if you, if you want to pursue that, go to your sponsor and, and talk to them about writing your own third step prayer. We're given a prayer, but you also get to write your own. And, uh, and I had an amazing, amazing experience. It changed my life. Um, and so, so we have that prayer and I made this decision and I've got to take some action and, and I got to do that fourth and, you know, the fourth and fifth step. Well, fourth and fifth step really just identify, you know, how I've been hurtful and harmful, right? I got this fourth step. They tell me how to do it. You know, I got column one, column two. No problem. I'm going to tell you who I feel smugly superior to, who I think owns me in immense, who I'm pissed off at, who I have resentment with, da, 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 and, and, uh, some of the principles I don't believe in, this and that. No problem. Easy. So I lay it all out and then they, you know, and, and, you know, you start to, oh, fourth column. Oh, really? And uh, I was told that if I don't do that fourth step, I'm, or that fourth column, I'm still living an act of alcoholism. One and two is I'm still blaming others. You're my reason. You're my reason. And then I got this fifth step, right? And I got this fifth step, I'm going to become transparent with another human being. And yet my sponsor... When I started to come clean with my fourth step, you know, I did the sex, you know, I'm not going to go into the, the whole fourth step, but uh, it was a very enlightening experience, and my, my sponsor so lovingly wrote down every character defect I owned, God bless her, and she, um, and she said, this list is what's blocking you from God. You can see, my, 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 my distance from God is measured by my distance from you. And if I got this going on, and I'm blaming others, that is the distance that I have with God. And, my, and, and this whole program is we suffer from a spiritual malady. I've been seeking the spirit in a bottle of spirits. I've been seeking something to fill me up. And this is the stuff that's blocking me. So now I want to go into, you know, you know, I got to fight, you know, my sponsor's going, okay, well, you know, let's lay it all out here. And, and we did. And, and you know, I, I thought, well, thank God that secret's out. And, uh, you know, she says, uh, are you walking away with anything? And that's when you've got to become absolutely honest with your, your, with your sponsor. And uh, hopefully you've written it all out. Um, 
it uh on six and seven she told me she says you know that's where we come we start to become helpful and useful it's where we're going to start to align with god it's where i'm going to get a change of heart a change of attitude and a change of outlook towards god towards people and towards and towards towards you towards my my fellows right and and yet in step six she says you've got to become willing to have god remove all these defects of character she says because if you're not you're getting a payoff somewhere you're getting a payoff and you're not willing. And so in seven, she said, ask him to remove your shortcomings. And, you know, and then we talk about eight. And she says, she says, this is the forgiveness step. Because if I'm not willing to put someone down on paper, I'm not forgiving them yet. I hurt and harmed them. And then in, in, uh, and in nine, she says, this is where the real work comes. It's my responsibility to my fellows. This is where how free you want to be. This is where I cooperate with God. When I say, okay, God, put this window of opportunity in my life to offer the amends to someone who's who's distant that I haven't had a relationship with for a while that I know that I hurt and harmed. I still owe one. I can't find this woman. I know her name's Lori. I went to school with her, played racquetball. I did some shameful things. I I, I don't know how to find her. Unless they go to a microfish at the Rio Hondo College from, you know, 30 years ago. I don't know. Um, I don't know how to find her, but I know I'm willing. I am willing, and I pray that you know God will put that in my path. But this is my cooperation with God. And then my step ten. This is my daily walking around step. And my ten is, uh, as it talks about in the big book, is this is the thing you know that I I am realizing my step two. So I get my sanity back because I've done the work up to this point. I've done this work, and I continue to do this work. On my step 10, it says, it says, you know, I've been placed in a position of, uh, of neutrality, safe and protected. But it's also my demonstration to God that I'm going to continue to look at, look at my life and examine my actions. What does it say in the big, in, the four, in that paragraph, it says continue four times. Continue, 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 continue. Continue to see where I've been selfish, dishonest, frightened, or, you know, frightened and, um, resentful. I don't know. Um, but I want to tell you about what happened on uh, on Sunday. On Sunday, I had a, um, I had um, silent scorned my stepdaughter, and uh, I uh, took her out, and, and I knew it was eating eating away at my spirit, and I knew it was it was keeping me in in, in somewhat of a funk, and it was keeping my distance from other people. And what I did was, when she showed up in in a, in a location, I pulled her out to the side, and I said, "Look, I said I want to uh, apologize to you. I said I have been I have been uh, silent scorning you all day. The best I could do was thank you." And I said, I said, your behavior is none of my business. That is between you and God. And yet I, am, I have an opinion about it, and I have punished you. And I apologize for that. How can I make it right? And she said, you just did. And uh, she's 21 years old. She's grown up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, she knows that, that we're very serious when we, when we work this program. Um, step 11 is one of my, you know, if it's not step two, it's step 11, and it was my sponsor's favorite step. And um, the night she died, I was at a meeting that she used to go to, and then we opened it up, and there, is no, there are no coincidences. They opened up that 12 and 12, and they were on step 11. You can't, uh, you can't, you can't, you can't make that shit up. And um, she talked about being in a realignment with step three. Because I made a decision in step three to seek a relationship. Make, it, you know, just make this decision to step three, to seek a relationship. And it's a thought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. You know, really, I'm at the pinnacle of it all. I'm like at 11. And she said, if you seek God in the morning, you don't have to seek him the rest of the day. 
because it says it in the big book. It says, upon awakening, it says, we ask God to direct our attention, to you know, direct, direct our thinking, especially that we divorce from self-pity, dishonesty, self-seeking motives. I'm checking in with God right away, right up, right up. She also said, if you don't um, seek God in the morning, it's your first act of self-will. And, uh, and you know, I, um, I pray in the bathrooms. I go to Starbucks. I'm all over the place. Um, I, I, you know, I know that prayer is a plea, a plea to God. But meditation is so important because that's where God gets in his word in edgewise. It's where we can hear him if we listen because we have that still small voice within. I did, I did hear a voice one time. It was recently, well, in 2010. I've, I've heard it a, lot, a, a little bit over the years. I mean, really blaring. Uh, when I got terminated in, some, in sobriety, my girlfriend, at four, four hours after I was terminated, we were sitting in a meeting, and, and uh, literally what happened, I was just crying, 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 crying. And all of a sudden, you know, I said, God, please, pres- you, know, you know, may I see, feel, and know your active presence in my life. And all of a sudden, this gray came all the way from the left, you know, from my right to, to the left. And it went absolutely gray, and I was in a meeting, and all of the chatter stopped. It was gray, and I heard, welcome. Of course, I discount it. So I'm like, what, welcome to freaking unemployment? You know? But um, what, 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 what turned was, welcome to the next phase of your development. This is where you're going to trust and rely upon God. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And, you know, step, step 12 is... Um, you know, our service work is not an extracurricular activity. It's a fundamental of our recovery. We have to do service work. You see, my 12-step may be someone's first step. And I have to be very conscious of that. And I have to practice these principles in all of my affairs. I have to know how I'm acting outside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd really like to, you know, I, you know, I do a self-check. How am I, how am I treating the, the, 7, the 7-Eleven cashier? How am I treating, uh, how am I treating my co-employees? How am I treating my boss with love and respect? Best I can do sometimes is quiet. How am I treating others on the outside of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? Practicing these principles. It says a more important demonstration of, all, of our principles lies in our homes, occupations, and affairs. Obviously, I didn't do that well when I was 16 years sober. I had some fear going on. I allowed, I allowed some things to dominate and control my thinking and my actions, and I was terminated. So I had to redouble my spiritual efforts and work this, work this program with a fervor. And um, I can tell you that as a result of my work in Alcoholics Anonymous, that epiphany on my parents' front porch when I became God conscious, I never had any kids. My 30s were great because I got sober when I was 29 and a half years old. And I've been able to travel the world. However, it wasn't the form of business. Um, it was through uh, it was through the Cal State Long Beach rugby team. We ended up in South Africa. I've been to China through Saddleback's college, Saddleback College program. Got a, uh, went to a history abroad. I've been to uh, Ireland and France and you know Canada, Fiji. We've been a lot of places. I can't I can't even recall all the places I've been. But always, Alcoholics Anonymous has been our, at our destination. I am. Um, I'm really grateful for Bill and Bob. Who, who? That's what that. What their dream was. But my dream is, is that um, Carl Jung wrote to Bill W. And that his letter said, he just believed that alcoholics and alcoholics had a low level yearning for connectedness. And I truly believe that that's what we put. That's what we. What's what we lack is that connectedness. 
You see, I had that, we have that, the divine spark within. And I chose to drink in the light of the Spirit. And as I take away the drink and I abstain from drinking, and I do this active work in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I feel that fire. And I see the light come on and I feel it. I feel, I feel it fueling. I feel it fired up. Um, one of the experiences that I had was on the Great Wall of China. And when we were on the Great Wall of China, the bus driver, we, we were on a tour, and the bus driver said, if you get off the bus and go to the left, you can see that the, the, the wall is very uh, congested with lots of people. It's a very easy climb. Um, or you can get off and go to the right. You can see that there's nobody on that wall because it's a very difficult climb. You know, we'll see you at three. So alcoholic, what do I choose? The difficult way. So we go up, and, and I, we, go up to the, we go up to the wall, and we're climbing these steps, and and I have to stop and catch my breath. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize the incline was so steep. And I take a breath. And, and then I continue on to climb a little bit. And I'm like, oh my God, can you help me? You know, can you push me, pull me? Can you help me up these steps a little bit? Now I'll do what I can. And so they did. And, um, and then I, finally I just had to stop because it was so difficult. And I stopped and I had to take a breath and regroup. And finally, when I got to the top, there was a, a, you know, I had to get some courage and strength and move forward. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I get to the top, and we get to that plateau. And if you've ever seen an aerial shot, you know, for the postcards of the Great Wall of China, and you see that wrapped around, uh, you know, this huge, big, long stream of steps and of, of the wall. And, and, and that is the vision that I received. And at that moment, I dropped on my knees. And I said, thank you, God. I have never, ever imagined that I would be on the Great Wall of China, ever. And what I received was this. This is your life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes the steps take our breath away. Sometimes we have to ask for help. You know, how do I do this fourth step? Uh, how do I make this amends? What prayers do you suggest? And then sometimes we just got to stop, regroup, redouble our efforts, and get the courage and the strength to move on. At that moment, I realized that I had finally achieved Eileen's peace. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, has given me a quiet mind, a skip of my step, and joy in my heart, and peace in my soul. I hope and pray it does that for you. Thanks.